and colleagues, and welcome to episode 71 of Dermosphere, the podcast by dermatologists, for dermatologists, and for the dermatologically curious. I'm one of your hosts. My name is Luke Johnson. I am a pediatric dermatologist and general dermatologist with the University of Utah. And joining me today is nobody else. Michelle has COVID, and she's doing okay, but said she felt basically too wiped out to record. So we thought he'd give her a break, and we're doing something a little bit different today, because nobody, with the possible exception of myself, wants to just sit and listen to me talk for an hour. This is a Best of Hydradenitis Separativa episode clipped together from some of our archives. The idea for this actually came from my wife, so shout out to Lindsay for this. We produce a lot of podcasts, and a lot of it tends to be, I guess I won't say a lot, but we obviously hit the same diagnoses, the same conditions several times. So we have talked about Hydradenitis Separativa a bunch of times, for example, and she said, wouldn't it be cool if you had some kind of episode that included you know, a bunch of stuff just on hydradenitis separativa. So if somebody was really interested in HS, they could have that as a resource. And I thought that was a neat idea. And of course, there's lots of other conditions out there than just hydradenitis separativa. So if we think this was a good idea, maybe we'll do it some more in the future for psoriasis or eczema or hemangiomas and other stuff that we have hit several times. So this is a bit different. This is clips from our previous episodes, and I hope that you enjoy it. We're going to start with an, a clip from episode five. This is a pretty long one. This is Michelle and I discussing hydradenitis separativa guidelines. And I thought this was a really good article, and it's definitely informed the way I generally take care of HS today. And I will see you guys before the next clip. Here we go. So the full title of the article is our North American Clinical Management Guidelines for Hydradenitis Superativa, a publication from the United States and Canadian Hydradenitis Superativa Foundations. It's kind of a mouthful. Uh, the upshot is that there hadn't been a North American group that had put out guidelines for hydradenitis superativa before. So now we've got some guidelines, which is great because this disease is real tough to manage. A whole bunch of people were involved in this from the United States and from Canada. The co-chairs of the group were Drs. Ali Khan and Saeed, and the senior author listed is Yves Poulin, if I'm pronouncing that right. It's probably French. Poulin. <laughs> so I am going to take part one, and Michelle is going to talk about part two. So part one here is diagnosis, evaluation, and the use of complementary and procedural management. Um, so there are a couple things that stood out about this particular aspect, and one is that Hurley staging is potentially kind of helpful. Normally when I see patients with HS or with a lot of dermatologic diseases, including things like eczema, I kind of rate it subjectively on a mild, moderate, and severe scale. Mostly it's for myself, so that when I'm looking at the note, you know, three months later, I see what I kind of thought. Uh, but this Hurley staging is fairly easy. So basically, stage one is mild, stage two is moderate, stage three is severe. More specifically, Hurley stage one has the recurrent nodules and abscesses, but not really scarring. Stage two has some scar, but still confined to mostly one body site. And stage three is, you know, bad, scarring sinus tracts in multiple locations. Michelle, do you document Hurley stages routinely? 
We do now um, because we need to overcome certain early stage hurdles to get patients certain therapies. Um, I think before adalimumab was FDA approved for the treatment of HS, the documentation of that was a little, little, a little bit more sparse, um, but we've been a little more rigorous about it since that FDA indication came out. Getting over the hurly hurdles. Uh, <laughs> that's what we do here at Dermosphere. So people often culture these patients with wound swabs and stuff, and they point out here that culture is not recommended unless you think there's some kind of secondary infection, like you see surrounding cellulitis or the patient has a fever, which makes a lot of sense. I think especially in the emergency care or PCP office setting, they get swabbed a lot and they come back with staph or strep, which are just kind of hanging out in the area and not really causing the issue. Uh, one of the things I thought was interesting is all of the comorbidities that can show up in people with hydradenitis suppurativa. Brief tangent, I feel like HS has been getting a lot more interest lately, which is probably good because a lot of people have this and it's really a crippling disease. So it's nice to see more interest taken in it. Um, even more of a tangent. <laughs> we interview people for our residency positions and a surprising number of, you know, fourth year medical students said specifically that they were interested in working on this disease. So it's nice to see. I knew about some of these comorbidities that you normally screen for, like smoking, because, you know, sometimes physicians like to blame things on patients. So it's nice <laughs> to say, well, you know, if you stop doing this, then maybe you'd get better. Same is true with obesity, um, and then metabolic syndrome kind of goes along with that. Depression, anxiety, I mean, it's easy to understand why people would be depressed if they had these sorts of conditions. We know the follicular occlusion, tetrads associated, squamous cell carcinoma, I probably have been a bit neglectful in paying too much attention to that possibility, maybe because I normally see people who with this disease and they're like in the 16 to 22 year range, and maybe it hasn't been longstanding enough to develop those things. But especially in people where it's been brewing for a lot longer in the perineum and buttock area, you want to take a look. And then the other thing they pointed out is inflammatory bowel disease is uh, significantly associated. So their strength of recommendation to screen for inflammatory bowel disease is an A, mm -hmm. I guess, on an ABCF range. So you just screen for that with review of systems type stuff, blood in the stools and abdominal pain, I guess. Okay, moving on to actual alternate or adjunct therapies. So one that I've started in liking at least to use, even if I don't know how helpful it is, is zinc. So they mentioned a couple studies of zinc gluconate, 90 milligrams daily. There were a couple studies, one with 54 patients and one with 22, and they got good results in just about everybody. Uh, the zinc also comes as a sulfate formulation, but that one's harder on the digestive system, I've discovered. So zinc gluconate is the one you want to use, gluco for good and sulfate <laughs> for sickening. Zinc gluconate, 90 milligrams daily. They say it's a pretty weak evidence, but hey, I doubt it hurts and it might help. It helped um, in the studies anyway. Have you been using that one, Michelle? Zinc gluconate, we've actually been using one of the topical over-the-counter washes that has zinc gluconate as an active ingredient. Oh. Am I, am I allowed to say brand names? Uh, we can do whatever we want. Woohoo! Okay, so the Cetaphil Foaming Acne Wash has zinc gluconate as an active ingredient, and for mild cases of HS, I've found it to be helpful. <clears throat> Easier to tolerate than some of the harsher things like uh, sometimes BPO in some of these patients that have a lot of irritation, too. Do you use that wash for anything else? Oh, acne. I use it for acne, and I have some of my patients that have acne culoidalis nuke using it also because I think it's helpful um, with anything that's part of the follicular occlusion tetrad. All right. 
Um, moving on to some surgical stuff. So they say that surgical management of acute HS is based on low quality, uncontrolled retrospective reports. My impression of the literature in general over the past few years is that the HS experts want us to have a lower and lower threshold to use some sort of procedural techniques, use them in combination with medical techniques to try to get this disease under control. So um, one of the modalities that was first described in 2010 is what's called de-roofing, where basically uh, probe all the abscesses and sinus tracts, and then you cut out the skin overlying them. You Maybe you cure it out some of the like granula, um, granulation tissue that's in there, and then you just cover it with petroleum jelly and let it heal by secondary intent. I know there are some videos online um, about how to do this if you're interested in trying. I'm kind of interested in doing it, though. I haven't had a patient yet so far that's required it. Um, they had some trials where they did the de-roofing on 73 patients, uh, I'm sorry, on 73 lesions. 17% of them recurred, which, you know, was pretty good. That means 83% <laughs> of them didn't, and 90% of the patients were satisfied. Um, so I think this is a pretty viable option. And also it seems like um, in a series of 590 patients, de-roofing and white excision were both about equal in effectiveness, and certainly de-roofing seems like uh, less invasive. You don't have to put the patient under general anesthesia, but you do have to pump them full of a lot of lidocaine in those areas. Um, incision and drainage by itself maybe offers some acute relief, but the lesions recur fairly quickly, so they point out that a small de-roofing procedure, like with a punch instrument, rather than just like poking it with a needle, a bit of a de-roofing lets it drain out and maybe makes it less likely to recur. And then there's a few other parts of this part one that I think are important. Uh, pain management, a little bit of a bugaboo for dermatologists potentially when it comes to HS. So they, of course, like oral acetaminophen and non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs. Um, they do mention topical analgesics such as like topical lidocaine, which I admit I normally don't think about for HS. They say opioids are sometimes necessary. Um, I feel like dermatologists in general probably aren't super comfortable prescribing narcotics for hydradenitis or prativa, but maybe our threshold should be a little bit lower because these people certainly are suffering. Um, and sometimes they can have flares and there are ways to get those under control, um, some of which you'll talk about when you get to part two and maybe giving them some pain control in the meantime might be helpful. And this part of the article ends with some discussion about laser light and energy sources. They talk about using NDYAG and CO2 lasers. Seems to work okay in some studies for people with early stage two or three. I don't know what more to say about it. I feel like I would start with de-roofing before I would go to something like that, but I know there are some people out there who are a lot better with lasers than I am, so maybe they would do the opposite. <laughs> I think the, the laser therapies, um, it's an attractive idea in certain patients. I think that access is certainly greater with the de-roofing procedures. Um, you definitely have to have good patient selection for those de-roofing procedures because the wound care is somewhat involved. And I think the patients that are a little bit more mature and have a little bit better um, literacy about their condition are gonna be better prepared to kind of undergo the wound care that's required after a de-roofing procedure. One thing both versions uh, or both segments of this article uh, mention is actually an excellent resource for anybody who takes care of HS patients, which hopefully is most dermatologists. And that's this website, www.hs-foundation.org. It's really important to put that dash in there 
there because if you don't, you're going to go to some kind of renewable energy webpage. So that www.hs-foundation.org. And it has great patient resources. It has uh, things you can print out and give the patients as handouts. It has access to something called www.hopeforhs.org, which is a great support group that started in Michigan but is spread all over the country. Um, because I think as this article touches on, this is a very morbid disease in terms of um, psychological and social impact on a patient's life. And so sometimes I think we're a little bit remiss in providing that level of support for patients. Yeah, I usually don't talk about support groups with my HS patients, but maybe I should. Maybe I should tell them about renewable energy as well. <laughs> I mean, always a good idea. Uh, the other thing I liked about this first part of the article is it brought up the fact that, first of all, it's not an uncommon condition. If you look at across studies, it varies between 0.1 to 2 percent of the population affected by the condition. And it preferentially affects young patients in their third to fourth decades of life. As with most things that are unfortunate, it preferentially affects women. And um, even deeper into that, it more heavily affects patients of color and those with lower socioeconomic situations. So um, people who have fewer potentially access to resources might have more severe disease, and this can really impact quality of life. There's some discussion also about potential developments with genetic susceptibilities, um, including possibly mutations with gamma secretase or within the notch pathway that might predispose patients to developing this. And also talking about some of the inflammatory mediators that seem to be elevated, including C-reactive protein, TNF, which is an interesting um, thing to think about always because we know that adipose tissue actually produces TNF and might be part of the reason why patients who suffer from weight-related illness might have more trouble with this condition. Um, IL-6 and IL-17, and they also mentioned there's a threefold increase in PCOS in this patient population. So any of your female patients with HS, you should be asking screening questions for the possibility of both metabolic syndrome and polycystic ovarian syndrome. I also wanted to mention one more thing about this de-roofing thing. If anybody out there is interested, um, you need a little bit of special equipment because you need the probe, but I'm told they're only about 30 bucks. So pull the trigger on the probe. Yeah, the probe is, you know, a necessary part of it. You can use a larger bore needle, but you have to be careful with how you're using it. So a blunt end is preferred. Um, Sometimes the sinus tracts are large enough that you can use certain metal instruments you might have in the clinic, but the probes, I think, are the better way to go about it. And when I've done it in the past, we, we've had the, the thin, delicate probes that you can actually use for this. And you just basically use the scalpel right on top of the probe to de-roof the lesion and then a curette to sort of take care of the excess tissue. Sounds fun. <laughs> it, it works well for properly selected patients. So I had part two of this article series from this North American Clinical Management Guidelines for HS. Um, and part two is Topical Intralesional Systemic Medical Management of HS. Uh, their disclaimer at the beginning was that this only included an in-depth review of articles published up to March 16th of 2017, and then they selected high-impact articles through December of 2018. They also said that there's no guarantee that following the guidelines results in successful treatment, and it's not meant to set a standard of care. Um, which I think is always an appropriate thing to kind of set as a caution. They have a great figure in this article for learners. So this is something I think that should be on the wall in every residency room. So figure one actually has a pictorial um, description of the early stages, as well as the different treatments that are useful at different stages of disease. I'll and hold so I, the uh, image up to the microphone yes, if, for our if listeners. You can, if you can hear this beautiful image. Here it um, is, but, thumping the microphone. <laughs> It's a really useful image, so I really think this would be one of those things you want to cut out and put on the wall in your residency room or on the bulletin board 
very useful um, figure here. They start off discussion with topical and interlegional therapies in HS. Topical treatment often includes skin cleansers, keratolytic agents, and topical antibiotics. There is really only empiric level data for what agents should be used, but chlorhexidine, benzoyl peroxide, zinc, pyrithione, and in my experience, and I am not an expert, um, the zinc gluconate wash are helpful. Resorcinol 15% cream has been studied in a small study of 12 women and was actually found to help reduce pain and duration of abscesses, but irritant dermatitis was frequent with this agent. Resorcinol is also used in a lot of over-the-counter topicals that are used for eczema and other inflammatory skin diseases. It's also in topical Vagisil and is a common source of irritant dermatitis in that area. But for 15%, I think you need to get it compounded. I've yeah, done it one is, time, I think. 15% is definitely higher than is available over-the-counter. Um, and I'm not surprised, having done research that involved resorcinol when I was in my younger years, that it would cause an irritant dermatitis with distilling things from plants. And you spill it on yourself a couple times, and you learn not to do that. Um, so helpful, but causes irritant dermatitis. Topical antibiotic, the only one that has good studies behind it was clindamycin 1% solution and a 12-week randomized placebo-controlled study of patients with early-stage Hurley conditions, so one or two-stage disease, did demonstrate reduced pustules, but it didn't really affect the inflammatory nodules or abscesses. So really, only the earliest stages of HS seem to be affected by topical clindamycin. And they do, all, of course, recommend the co-use of something else, such as benzoyl peroxide, to reduce the risk of resistance developing in these patients. I like benzoyl peroxide in general. Uh, that's what I go to for my wash for these patients because I like that it has anti-inflammatory properties as well as antibacterial. Do you go straight to the zinc gluconate wash you mentioned, sort of first line? It kind of depends on how irritated and how sensitive the patient's skin appears to be. So we usually try to start with benzoyl peroxide, and if they can't tolerate that, we go to the zinc gluconate. Okay. That usually works pretty well as an algorithm. Um, they also talked about intralesional triamcinolone, which I know I've certainly used sometimes for my patients. Typically, um, they recommend the 10 milligrams per milliliter strength, which I think you have to be thoughtful about going to any higher strength because the areas that typically involved with HS are also very highly predisposed to the development of stria. And so higher concentrations of triamcinolone may be problematic in those areas. Um, that And that these um, medications injected into the HS lesions can demonstrate reductions in physician-assessed erythema, edema, separation, and size, as well as the decrease in the pain visual analog scale after one day. So really useful in short-term acute management, not necessarily something that alters the long-term course of the disease, but helps with acute flares. Their next section was systemic antibiotics, and those are obviously a mainstay of HS treatment and have been for many decades. Um, many regimens have been used. Monotherapy can be used for mild disease, and that's a theme throughout this article is that earlier treatment is more effective. And um, another theme in this article is only adalimumab out of all of the therapies listed here has category A evidence. Everything is either categories B or C. So they had a single randomized controlled trial with tetracycline, 500 milligrams twice daily. To my knowledge, tetracycline is not available in the U.S. anymore. Have you been able to get it? I wouldn't want to. <laughs> so, you know, most people would use doxycycline or minocycline, but um, tetracycline 500 milligrams twice daily was utilized um, along with topical clindamycin and gave a 30% reduction of abscesses in um, both groups. Actually, sorry, that was comparing those two. And they didn't really have a significant difference between the topical clindamycin and the 500 milligrams twice daily tetracycline. Minocycline has only been evaluated in studies in combination with colchicine, so its use as monotherapy is kind of unclear. And then doxycycline twice daily was used in combination with either adalimumab or placebo. 
in a group of patients in the pioneer studies um, on adalimumab, but wasn't independently linked to better outcomes on either arm. So I think some of the things most of us reach for first, which would be a tetracycline family antibiotic, um, may not be that effective in managing disease course. Clindamycin and rifampin in combination have been studied more than any other antibiotics used by mouth in HS, with both used at a dose of 300 milligrams twice daily, which is lovely because it makes it easy to remember. And their review of these studies demonstrated response rates between 71 to 93 percent in 187 patients, which favors their use. Treatment right. usually, yeah. I was just going to say, yeah, they used it for eight to 12 weeks and then repeated as necessary. Mm -hmm. But remember, um, if you're going to do this, remember rifampin's potential effect on things like OCPs, and this is a, often a patient group that might be taking them. And also reminding to the people to tell the patient that um, their urine, tears, and sweat can turn orange with rifampin because that will potentially save you some phone calls. Um, and do it before Halloween. <laughs> um, again, these are most useful in patients with mild to moderate disease. That's a theme here. Treating early is usually better than treating late. And um, it can also be used as an adjuvant therapy in patients with severe disease. They also talked about this triple combination therapy with metronidazole, moxifloxacin, and rifampin in a very small study of patients um, with, a, with 28, well, about 28 patients, that's not too small. Um, so they had great success in patients with early stage one, six out of six patients, um, eight out of 10 patients with early stage two, and two out of 12 patients with early stage three had complete response. So again, earlier treatment is is ideal. So this is uh, moxifloxacin 400 daily, metronidazole 500 TID, rifampin 300 BID, all for three months, except for the metronidazole, which you only do for six weeks because of potential neurologic toxicity. Yeah, and I think that because that's a medicine that we don't tend to use for long periods of time as dermatologists, we probably forget that it can have cerebellar toxicity that can cause limb and gait ataxia or dysarthria, and can also cause peripheral neuropathy basically of all kinds. So it can cause motor, sensory, optic, and autonomic neuropathy. All of those have been reported with long-term metronidazole. So and they remember... Yeah, remember from the USMLE that can also have a disulfiram-like reaction <laughs> with alcohol. So they're on rifampin and metronidazole. No sex, no alcohol. <laughs> Got to take all the fun out of their lives right now. But um, that did tend to be helpful. Relapse was common, but most patients did respond to a second course. They considered um, this therapy as a third-line treatment or as potentially a bridge to surgery um, for patients who were having a planned intervention. They looked at Dapsone in a retrospective review. 38% uh, of patients responded to Dapsone, but none of the patients with Hurley stage 3 responded. And uh, another series of five patients noted some positive response um, treatment, usually for at least three months. Dosing yeah. studies. Seems yeah. like an act of desperation. Yeah, 50 to 200 milligrams daily were considered. But there's relatively low response rates. You have to monitor things very carefully with Dapsone. So again, they called this a, basically a third-line treatment for the early, early stage conditions, which, as we've seen, um, might respond to more conventional treatment uh, just as well. You mentioned the minocycline plus colchicine mm -hmm. um, combo. Did you want to talk about that? I'm going to touch on that a little bit more in depth when I get to colchicine, because um, they actually went into that more with the systemic immunosuppressants. They went into that study a little bit more in depth. But um, just briefly, they had patients that they studied with the combination of minocycline, um, 100 milligrams daily, and colchicine, 0.5 milligrams daily for six months. Then they followed that by colchicine alone for three months. 
And these were all patients with early stage one or two diseases, 20 patients. All of the patients did improve. Um, so that could be a useful treatment in some patients, but colchicine by monotherapy did not seem as beneficial. So minocycline with colchicine seemed to have some beneficial effect. Yeah, uh, one slight correction. It's colchicine 0.5 twice daily. Oh, my bad. Sorry. Minocycline 100 daily. Yeah, which the minocycline dosing once a day was kind of different. But, you know, I think since they were using it in combination with another drug, um, they had a, a third uh, kind of point that they made about antibiotics where they brought forward this study of 30 patients that were treated with one gram IV erdipenem. Um, these patients were treated with that daily and they were predominantly patients with early stage one or two. Um, they were able to reach clinical remission in the early stage one or two patients. The early stage three patients um, also had improvement in quality of life but didn't necessarily have clinical remission. Uh, patients did have frequent re relapses with discontinuation, and so most patients had to receive additional oral antibiotics after the erdipenem was discontinued. Um, it was highly effective, but should be reserved for third-line therapy because a six-week course of daily IV medication is challenging to accomplish in most patients. Not and to they, mention not very cost-effective. Yeah, it's, it's a pretty expensive medication. Um, they thought it would be useful as rescue therapy or a treatment to get the patient ready for a surgical treatment uh, because of the barriers of home infusions. Concerns about antibiotic resistance and this sort of conserved antibiotic. Other antibiotics that we use a lot, including, you know, trimethoprim sulfamethoxazole, beta-lactams, linazolid, and others have anecdotal reports, but no large studies. So they, you know, emphasize throughout this paper kind of a call to action for more studies to be done on this sort of neglected disease. They uh, again talk about the www.hs-foundation.org as a resource, and I do want uh, to make sure people are aware of that because I think it is a phenomenal resource. Hormonal therapies in HS can also be helpful. We know that androgens influence HS because it can flare related to pregnancy or menstrual cycles for a lot of patients, um, but the recommendations for hormonal therapies are all based on pretty limited evidence. So they had a one randomized controlled trial of hormonal therapy that compared ethanyl estradiol norgestrel with ethanyl estradiol and cyprodrone uh, acetate. And this was a double-blind controlled crossover trial with 24 women. Both therapies actually resulted in pretty similar improvement. Um, so 12 patients improved or cleared completely in that study. So these are OCPs, sort of standard OCPs we might prescribe for other reasons. Um, with or without cyprodrone acetate, which is an antiandrogen we sometimes use to treat patients who have off-label, of course, who have androgenetic alopecia, especially when they have bifrontal, um, bitemporal recession. So they might be more more able to be um, receiving benefit from cyprodorin acetate for alopecia if they have that bitemporal recession, but it's a very much on off-label use. Um, a retrospective study of 29 women treated with anti-androgen therapies, which included ethanyl estradiol, cyprodorin acetate, or spironolactone. Um, they had 55% achieving improvement, spironolactone, uh, 100 to 150 milligrams daily, gave improvement in 17 out of 20 patients, including complete remission in 11 out of 20, so about 55%. Um, but of the three patients with a severe HS, none of them cleared. So again, back to that theme that earlier is, of course, easier to treat. But 85% um, improvement's pretty good. That's pretty good. I think that, you know, um, anti-androgen therapy is something we probably underutilize a little bit in the treatment of HS and something we should consider. The one uh, thing I'll mention is that I think a lot of these studies were not placebo controlled. So it's not 85% compared to 0% on placebo. Right. It's just 
percent and that's all we did so yeah tough to say for sure but 85 percent still seems pretty good it's hard to do a study in something that can impact somebody's life as much as hs with a you know placebo control that has nothing in it um, if i had five inflammatory skin diseases i could get rid of with my dermatologic magic wand in order they would be pyoderma gangrenosum because it's terrible but the second one would be hs then i'd go psoriasis then i do the lichen planey so if i can get all the lichen planus in one one shebang i'd do that sure. and then the, the lupi would be my fifth the lupi the lupi yes um so Let's see here. Maybe I'd switch lupus and like a place. There we go. Michelle's five most hated, <laughs> or I don't, most hate is not the right word. Most magic wand targeted. <laughs> so they also then talk about metformin, 500 milligrams, two to three times daily. Um, and that was associated with significant improvement in 18 out of 25 patients. So 72% um, in a study that was performed in an uncontrolled fashion. Um, so again, the, like we were talking about, this is, you know, 72% over just baseline without, you know, accounting for the fact that there's observer bias and people sometimes can improve just because they're being monitored. Um, in this study, they use the Sartorius score, which is a little bit different than the Hurley stages. The Sartorius score is made by including, uh, by counting involved regions, nodules, and sinus tracts. So they count the anatomic region involved, which can include axilla groin, genital, gluteal, or other region, and you get three points per region. Then the number of score and scores of lesions, so abscesses, nodules, fistulas, and scars, and you get two points for each nodule, four points for each fistula, one point for each scar, and one point for each other, whatever other is. And then the longest distance between two relevant lesions, so nodules, fistulas in each region, um, so less than five millimeters is two points, less than 10 millimeters is four points, and more than 10 centimeters is, sorry, is um, eight points. So basically the further apart the lesions that are involved with each other are. So longer sinus tracts basically get more points. I'm convinced I'm going to start including this in all of my clinical assessments. <laughs> I think it's a useful research instrument. I think that doing this in an average office appointment would be a lot more difficult than just measuring the Hurley stage. Uh, they also talk about the DLQI the Dermatology Life Quality Index score. This is for met, the metformin trial still? This is for the metformin trial. That was, and the was DL, 25 patients. Yeah, and the DLQI study, uh, DLQI instrument basically measures the impact of the patient's disease on their life. So a higher score means they have an extremely large effect on their life and a lower score means that the condition is not affecting their life significantly. So this metformin study did improve both the Sartorius score by 72% and the, uh, or in 72% of patients, and the DLQI score in 64% of patients in a 24-week but uncontrolled prospective study. Yeah, um, I think both spironolactone and metformin look a little bit more effective than I had thought they were. Most of these, especially in female patients, which is the majority of patients affected by HS. So most of the patients in this um, metformin study were females with features of PCOS, so they're kind of a pre-selected patient population that might respond more favorably to metformin, given the tendency towards insulin resistant in patients with PCOS. And then they had another study of adjunctive or monotherapy with finasteride in 1.25 to 5 milligrams per day. And I apologize, that was just in four reports. So there were, there were just four patients in total. Um, so that was a smaller series of information, but finasteride theoretically could have benefit, which makes sense. Um, they mentioned that there's anecdotal concern about progesterone-only regimes worsening HS, and I think all of us have probably observed this. Um, 
you know, Depo is one of my le less favorite medications for a lot of reasons, but this is one of them because I think it worsens HS and it worsens acne and causes sometimes weight gain in patients. So I know you have to use it for chronic pregnancy of childhood sometimes, but otherwise I think it should probably not be used if you have other good alternatives. Uh, they said hormonal agents can be considered as monotherapy in females with mild to moderate HS or as adjuncts for more severe disease, especially if the patients report flares around menses or if they have features of PCOS. And then they have a very nice table, table one here, which demonstrates the strengths of recommendation for the different therapies in the management and treatment of HS. They move on to discuss retinoids. Um, retinoids have been frequently used for HS because the pathogenesis is considered to be similar to acne vulgaris, but they point out, as I have found in my practice, that results in HS are somewhat disappointing compared to what we see with cystic acne. Um, so that sort of is consistent with our understanding of HS as a follicular disorder. Sometimes we use isotretinoin. They've also done some studies with acetretin. So they had four retrospective and three prospective uncontrolled cohort studies with five or more patients that they looked at with isotretin for monotherapy. So they had a total of 207 patients total in these combined studies. Doses ranged from 0.5 to 1 milligram per kilogram per day, and the mean duration of treatment was between four and 10 months. Early stages were usually unreported, uh, probably because a lot of these studies were done before adalimumab came out and had their pioneer studies when people started thinking about actually recording the early stages. Um, so they had kind of varied um, reporting with that, but they had approximately 41% improvement um, with better responses in, of course, milder disease. And it's most helpful in patients that have concomitant nodular cystic acne, which makes sense. And it's probably more, more helpful for their acne than for their HS. Um, many consider azotretin superior to isotretinoin, um, which I think is reasonable considering the way the medications work, uh, but comparative act evidence is lacking. No one's done a head-to-head -head trial of these two things. And of course, azotretin is contraindicated in the largest patient population affected by HS, which would be women of childbearing potential. Um, they did have three cohort studies and one small randomized controlled study, which was azotretin versus azotretin and wide excision. And these were mostly in patients with early stages two and three, with about 50 patients total in both of these combined, in these combined studies. And their typical dosing was 0.5 to 0.6 milligrams per kilogram per day with treatments ranging from three to 12 months. And they had 54% of patients in these combined studies with improvement. There was another study of a, a retinoid that we don't have available in this country um, called alatretinoin. Alatretinoin um, is a retinoid that's sometimes used to treat different conditions that can include metastatic lung cancer of certain types. But they had a single perspective uncontrolled study of 14 females receiving alatretinoin. And this was 10 milligrams per day for 24 weeks, which demonstrated improvement in all patients. They had a significant improvement in 78.5% of patients and 42% had a reduction in sartorius scale of more than 50% with the DLQI decreasing from 17, and 17 on a DLQI means that it has a very large effect on patient's life, to two, and a DLQI of two means a small effect on the patient's life. So significant improvements in quality of life there, but again, alitretinoin is not available in the United States. So that came from our Canadian um, allies here in the study. Thanks, Canada. <laughs> I like that. Um, so that was interesting. So then we move on to discuss systemic immunosuppressants. Amuse, uh, uh, the use of immunomodulators has been reported. Methotrexate was studied. Long story short, it didn't work, so not recommended. Azathioprine was also studied, showed only slight improvement, basically from these studies and also considering azathioprine's other side effects, 
not recommended. Cyclosporin has been studied in fewer than 20 cases, with responses generally being poor. Um, case reports of use up to six mg per cake per day uh, in combination with other therapies have noted improvement, but relapse is frequent with discontinuation of the medication and side effects are often limiting. So not necessarily a strong recommendation there. And then they discussed that colchicine combined with minocycline trial, where in combination with, uh, it, so colchicine 0.5 milligrams twice daily in combination with minocycline 100 milligrams daily for six months, followed by colchicine alone for three months, showed improvement in all patients. Um, so that's something that might be useful for some patients, but it's not useful in monotherapy. Systemic steroids can sometimes be used just the same way we use it sometimes for patients that have acne fulminans. So it's used to treat that severe inflammation in these patients. There was a case series of 13 patients and they had six patients that was uh, out of their 13, that was 46% of them with a partial response and five, which is about 38% that had a good response with the addition of 10 milligrams of prednisone to their existing regimen. And that included five patients who didn't initially respond to adalimumab. So some, uh, they do note that most experts do use prednisone pulses or multi-week tapers for rescue therapy for flares or if they're bridging to another long-term therapy. Yeah, I thought this was a standout portion of the article because I normally don't think about using prednisone for hydradenitis suppurativa. So it sounds like maybe it would be useful for flares. And it's a funny thing because we think about it for acne fulminans or when people have really severe nodulocystic acne flares, but we don't just, our brain doesn't just go there necessarily with HS. And so I, I agree with you. I think that's kind of a standout pearl there. Um, immunomodulation, um, they talk about biologics in HS and that it's becoming kind of a cornerstone of therapy for moderate to severe HS. They're looking at targeting TNF as well as IL-1, IL-12, and then IL-23 as well, and then TH17 pathways. Adalimumab is approved by the FDA for the treatment of moderate to severe HS, so that's really stages two and three. Yeah, though something that came out that I hadn't quite realized before I looked at this article was that the evidence, like, it's not super dramatic. So it is not overwhelming. I was their, surprised by that, too. Their best, uh, best thing that looks like got it approved was, like, 42% responded on adalimumab versus 26% on placebo, 42 versus 26, and then 59 versus 28. That's, I mean, it's better, and I'm it's glad adalimumab's improved, but it's, it's still It's pretty like, hefty dosing, too, because it's 160 milligrams at week zero, and then 80 milligrams at week two, and then 40 milligrams weekly starting at week four. So that's an important pearl, I think, for those studying for recertification, well, not recertification, unless it's medical derm. Uh, if you're recertifying in medical derm or if you are uh, taking your initial certifying exam, I think knowing this dosing regimen for HS with adalimumab might be good board spotter. So again, it's a real hefty dose at week zero, 160 milligrams at week zero, then 80 milligrams at week two, and then 40 milligrams weekly. Different, very much different from the psoriasis dosing for HS. Yeah, a lot more. And so, and then the Pioneer 2 study actually uh, continued treatment with concomitant tetracycline in, uh, class antibiotics during the clinical tri trial period. And so that's where we got that 59% versus the 28% in placebo from the Pioneer 2 study. So that's actually adalimumab with an assist from a tetracycline. Um, so I was surprised that the numbers were a little slightly bit underwhelming. This is a very difficult condition to treat. So like they like to say when we're doing fundraising, every little bit helps, but um, this is a very difficult disease to treat for sure. Um, so they had uh, the ability to do crossover in both of these pioneer studies and noted that some patients take longer to respond. So some non-responders at week 12 
um, actually achieved response. 40% of the non-responders achieved response at 36 weeks with continuing treatment. So but um, half of the 12-week responders actually lost response at week 36 despite maintenance dosing. Kind of wanna, makes you want to bang your head against the wall when this is the one medicine that's approved for it. It's, it's, a, it's a little bit challenging. Um, they report also on uh, the study results for infliximab. There was a single-study double-blind placebo-controlled trial with infliximab 5 mix percade versus placebo at week 0, 2, and 6, then every eight weeks on an open-label uh, open crossover study. And they had four out of 15 patients receiving infliximab, so 27%, versus one out of 18 patients receiving placebo, 5%, achieving that primary endpoint of a 50% or greater decrease in the HS severity index score. The other thing that stood out to me um, reading this article is that there's multiple different severity scoring regimes in place for HS, and it does make it a little difficult to compare results across, uh, across trials, and so I think it's important to kind of familiarize yourself with the different instruments. Uh, they said that the post-hoc analysis of the patients receiving infliximab and the patients receiving placebo, they had a 25% or greater improvement in the HS severity index score. And um, they also noticed significant improvements in the DLQI score, the pain visual, um, visual score, as well as the mean um, physician global assessment score. So definitely some improvement, but not a striking number. So... Um, infliximab is sort of one of those that they bring up in this table. Um, one is having kind of category B evidence where it has some evidence, but it's somewhat inconsistent as to if that's going to be helpful or not. They also yeah. Have, yeah. yeah, you may have just been about to talk about this, but they also point out a case series with systemic review and showed response was reached by 78% of patients, which is significantly better. Yeah, significantly. Uh, and then the, maybe some of this is the dosing. So they point out that expert experience suggests you should do 10 mg per kg every four to eight weeks to try to get optimal control. I don't know. I feel like infliximab is probably going to get approved for this at some point. I think it probably will. And I think this is also a theme that when we do use biologics, we're usually having to use them at higher doses than what we would use for psoriasis. There's also a patient population with an overlap between psoriasis and HS, and it's higher than you would expect by just chance. So some of these patients actually have both things. And before HS had indications with TNF-alpha inhibitors, patients were actually getting sometimes approved for their psoriasis and getting side benefit with their HS because of the medication that was being used for their psoriasis. So etanercept, this isn't probably going to surprise anybody, but um, so the data supporting the use of etanercept in HS are somewhat conflicting. They evaluated doses between 100 to 500, sorry, sorry, between 50 to 100 milligrams weekly. They got low-level evidence um, from incompletely validated outcome measures in a single-center randomized double-blind placebo-controlled study um, that showed basically no statistical improvement in patient or physician-reported outcomes. I'm sold. They're, yeah. And there were three prospective open-label trials, including 31 subjects that demonstrated mixed results. So, you know, we know that etanercept is not our strongest TNF medication, family medication, um, and it's not a surprise that it's not fuerte enough to deal with HS. HS is like the big guy at the bar. you got to pull out your big guns. Um, galimumab. We do uh, not recommend getting into fights with big guys at bars. <laughs> yes, don't do that. This Regardless. is just Michelle's own Friday night kind of activity. Yes, don't Tito's and tan, and don't get into fights with big guys <laughs> in the park. So galimumab, um, they had a limited data supporting the use of galimumab, which is two case reports. One case report had no response with 50 milligrams every four week. 
In the other, um, they had an ulcerative colitis dosing regimen with 200 milligrams at week zero and 100 milligrams every four weeks starting at week two, showed some helpful um, tendencies. So again, higher doses may be recommended for HS. So the themes of this article are treat as early as possible because early treatment is better and higher doses of medication are often required to achieve therapeutic effects, especially with the biologic agents. In Akinra, they had a placebo-controlled and randomized controlled study of 20 participants, and six out of 10 participants were treat that were treated with Anakinra 100 milligrams daily reported a reduction in non-validated HS disease activity score at 12 weeks, compared with two out of 10 treated with placebo. Um, they retro retrospectively assessed um, the hydradenitis score at uh, 12 weeks in seven out of nine patients receiving anakinra versus three out of 10 patients with placebo had improved. And they had changes in, uh, they, so they modified, uh, they did an analysis to look for changes in the Sartorius score, the VLQI and the visual acuity scale for pain. And they didn't have any significant difference between the different treatments groups. So the um, anakinra is basically something they would only recommend if a patient failed to respond to TNF inhibitors and Anakinra got category B evidence, but it's not recommended unless TNF inhibitors didn't help. Eustachinumab, which is the human monoclonal antibody against the P40 subunit of IL-1223, had an open label study of 17 subjects with moderate to severe HS, so early stages two to three. And they were given uh, Eustachinumab 45 milligrams or 90 if they weighed more than 100 kilograms every 12 weeks. 14 of the 17 patients had a mean improvement of um, 46% in a modified Sartorius score, and eight subjects achieved a 50% reduction in inflammatory lesion count, so some benefit there. Reductions in DLQI and VAS score were not significant, so they didn't feel like it made a huge impact in the quality of life necessarily. Um, patients in six additional case reports had variable responses, so again, they think higher dosing, similarly to, similar to what's used in inflammatory bowel disease, might be more successful for HS, but there's no data on that yet. And then they delve into how do we treat this in pediatric and pregnant patients. Hopefully not pediatric pregnant patients, although that does happen sometimes. So literature on the treatment of pediatric HS is very limited, and usually it's going to be patients that have very severe disease. Uh, several authors recommend if you have a pediatric patient that presents with HS, they should have an endocrinologic evaluation. Um, and they suggest that HS may be more severe in pediatric patients um, and affect more sites than adult HS does. So they think they need a phys complete physical exam as well as looking for signs of metabolic syndrome and precocious puberty. And then further evaluation and management kind of stems from history and examination findings. Um, a lot of these manage... are if they're especially young. So yeah. if they're age 11 or younger and they have other suspicious physical exam findings, it might be worth looking for precocious puberty. But certainly there's lots of like 16-year-olds oh, with yeah. HS. And... I think with a condition that's hormonal like this, pediatric sort of has like quotes around it. And it's, you know, I think it would be patients that potentially you would, nece would not necessarily have expected to go through menarche yet, you know? Yeah. So the goal, of course, is to minimize scarring, progression, and need for surgery in these pediatric patients. But you, they recommend being open-minded because early procedural interventions may actually have the potential for cure in some patients. And, you know, I think some, some centers that have done more radical surgical treatments have found that younger patients have better outcomes. So... Mm -hmm something to think about. Um, with pregnancy, uh, HS may improve, worsen, or be unaffected by pregnancy. So you have three options, and basically they encompass every possible outcome. Pick um, one. 
Yeah, pick one. Um, treatment of pregnant women and HS, of course, you have to be very careful because a lot of the medications would be contraindicated in pregnancy or breastfeeding. Um, so you have to think about that when you're treating patients with HS, but uh, we haven't actually studied the medications used for HS in pregnant patients, and I don't think we probably ever will. And so they make a push, of course, to individualize treatments for pregnant patients. Topical treatments, procedural treatments, which I thought was interesting. I think they mean local procedural treatments and not ones that would require general anesthesia. And lifestyle modifications, which, you know, tell a pregnant woman to lose weight. I think that's, you risk, you need to learn the duck and weave if you're going to do that. Right. Um, <laughs> should be considered first-line treatment, systemic agents should be considered second-line treatment. Retinoids and hormonal therapies, of course, are contraindicated, as are certain immunosuppressants. Um, last time I checked when we were still using pregnancy categories, adalimumab was category B for pregnancy. Uh, I'm not sure if they've adjusted that since the last time I read up on it, but I think theoretically you could potentially consider that, although I'm not sure if it would necessarily be approved, because that can be a challenge. So their conclusion is that EHS management is difficult. It requires a lot of... Um, thought about the individual patient and rigorous guidelines are really hard to make because a lot of data is unavailable. And again, they kind of make a little impassioned plea for more people to do studies. So we have better data to draw from. I think that's happening as well. Uh, looking into articles for next time, we might talk a little bit more about HS, though some of our listeners might be tired of hearing about it since we just spent 45 minutes on these two articles. So Dear listeners, we'll go a little bit quickly through our next articles, but these were um, some of the meatiest ones, and I thought important because sometimes if you see a patient with hydradenitis superativa on your schedule, you're like, duh. At least I sometimes am like that. I don't want to assume that our listeners are like that. But reading these articles is helpful. Um, I think the most important things I got out of it are zinc gluconate, 90 milligrams a day, easy, might help. Spironolactone and metformin, both more helpful than I often give them credit for, though I think the dosing um, is helpful. You got to go a little bit moderate. So spironolactone, at least 100 milligrams, and metformin, usually 500, at least BID, if not TID or greater, is helpful. Um, and then the prednisone thing, as I mentioned before. I agree. There's some things you don't think about. And, you know, I think that some of us might have expected stronger numbers out of the adalimumab studies and you know, we need to know that nothing's really a miracle for this condition and a multidisciplinary approach is often needed. Our next clip is from episode seven, and it's about pain perception in hydradenitis separativa. Um, I'm going to talk about an article called Pain Perception in Patients with Hydradenitis Superativa. And it is indeed about pain perception in patients with hydradenitis superativa. So I thought this was an interesting article for a couple reasons. Um, it is out of Denmark, and the authors include R.M. Nielsen and G.B. Jemek. And it is out of a journal called... I swear I wrote this down. Is this... Uh, Wait, wait, I'll find it. Sorry, it's an art journal we've reviewed before. All right, well, I'll tell you guys sometime later which art journal this is from. Um, but, uh, you know, cool article. So what happened here is that they had 138 HS patients, and they evaluated them with a questionnaire called the McGill Pain Questionnaire, or the MPQ, which can distinguish between sensory affective and evaluative qualities of pain. Um, so this is kind of an interesting tool. So it's got 78 words in this questionnaire that are used to describe pain. 
and they're grouped in three major classes of pain. Sensory, affective, and evaluative. Uh, thank you, Michelle. Uh, it's the British Journal of Dermatology. I, yeah, I knew I had heard of that one. <laughs> um, so, and each... And they, each of these, sensory, affective, and evaluative, generally have subclasses of various types of pain. And then each subclass has two to six pain descriptors, which are ranked from lowest to highest intensity of pain. I'll give you an example in a sec here. And the MPQ, this McGill Pain Questionnaire, provides a quantitative measures of pain derived from these pain descriptors. And then you can um, derive what's known as a pain rating index from each pain descriptor where the rank reflects the intensity of the pain. And then the number of words chosen is another dimension of the intensity of pain. So the more words a patient chooses, the more intense the pain is experienced. So basically you hand these people a questionnaire that has 78 words that describe pain, each grouped into different groupings, and they just pick the ones they think describe their particular pain. So they don't have to like pick one from every category, they just pick whatever they feel um, applies to them. So for example, um, in the sensory class, the subclass punctate pressure includes the words in order of least pain to greatest pain, Pricking, boring, drilling, stabbing, and lancinating. So thanks, you listeners can thank me. Now you guys are wondering if you're experiencing pain that falls into any of those categories. <laughs> and an example of the affective class, there's the punishment subclass. Oof. And the words include punishing, grueling, cruel, vicious, and killing. And for the evaluative class includes annoying, troublesome, miserable, intense, and unbearable. It's like 50 shades of hydrodynitis. <laughs> yeah, there you go. So also this was the uh, Dutch version. So they give the Dutch words here. So instead of punishing, grueling, etc., it's strafende, opsledende, mob. You know, obviously I can't do this. Um, <laughs> but it uh, it does bring into question, like, are the Dutch words really the equivalent of those words, especially in this questionnaire where the words themselves are so important with their context and connotations and everything, but presumably um, the various translators did a good job. This thing has been validated. So they gave these people these questionnaires, and they also assessed symptoms of depression and anxiety with the Hospital Anxiety and Depression Scale, or HADS. So uh, their findings here is that based on the HADS, 14% of these folks had depression and 35% presented anxiety, which is a fair amount of um, comorbidity of these mental health issues in patients with hydradenitis superativa. So as far as their MPQ words, the most common descriptors the HS patients used to describe their pain was shooting. That was number one. And, and then an order from most common to least common after shooting is itchy, blinding, taut, boring, like a boring with a drill thing, not like, oh, I'm so bored with this pain. <laughs> Tugging, cutting, exhausting, and tight. And then the subclasses thermal, heat-related stuff, brightness, and evaluative were the most frequent subclasses. Um, and then they say the average pain intensity rank was 59%. And then using the various measures that they can derive from the scale as surrogates for pain intensity, they found um, a mean number of words chosen of 12, 
and a pain rank intensity of 59%. What does that mean? Well, they quote in comparison another study that was looking at vulvar lichen sclerosis, where they found the number of words chosen was about eight. So HS, the number of words chosen was 12, and lichen sclerosis, it was eight, supposedly suggesting that patients with HS have more discomfort than folks with lichen sclerosis. And the pain rank intensity for the HS patients in similar comparison um, was similar, 24.5 in this study, and then the lichen sclerosis was 18 to 24, so maybe a little bit lower, but overall pretty similar. I think that this is an interesting study um, because it suggests that people with hydradenitis suprativa and perhaps other conditions as well could have different mechanisms of the ways they experience pain. So they point out in this article that words such as burning, stinging, and stabbing are generally considered related to neuropathic pain, whereas words like throbbing, gnawing, and aching suggest nociceptive pain. So in their sample, they say 32% of patients chose burning and 39% chose gnawing, suggesting that HS pain includes both nociceptive and neuropathic pain. So why is this important clinically? Well, it suggests different ways you might be able to manage their pain. So we have, obviously, we like things like acetaminophen and NSAIDs to try to control people's pain. We also like to treat the underlying condition. Makes sense. So, but if they have no susceptive and neuropathic pain, then perhaps agents that target those particular pathways can be helpful. So made me think about things like gabapentin. Could that be helpful for some of our HS patients? I think it certainly suggests um, different real ways you can go for future research projects. And also gabapentin, for example, I consider fairly safe, especially if you start off at like 100 milligrams QHS. And if you've got a patient with HS who's having trouble with pain, I think based on this study, I might think about adding something like that. I think that sounds very reasonable. Um, of course, everybody uh, always finds a way to ruin our good drugs. So people have found ways to abuse gabapentin. Silly people are now apparently opening the capsules and snorting the dadgum stuff. So you do have to counsel your patients about the fact that um, they need to be cautious about where they store their gabapentin. Don't give our and... listeners any ideas, Michelle. <laughs> but I think it's also good to warn patients if they Google it. Um, gabapentin will have some nefarious looking descriptors on the inter interwebs and so letting them know that you know silly people who find ways to abuse drugs have found ways to abuse this drug they need to keep it out of the reach of children and most importantly away from teenagers and um, you know just let them know that you're aware of that and that you believe they're an ap appropriate patient can't trust teenagers that's for sure yeah you know so since you're a street drug expert Michelle how about pregabalin <laughs> oh, that one's actually can I snort that worse. one too Theoretically, that one seems to be worse. I think you actually have to have a controlled, like, I think that one's actually controlled at a higher level than gabapentin is. Really? Gabapentin's not controlled at all, but I think Lyrica at some point was requiring, like, NPIs and things like that, or not NPIs, DEAs to prescribe. Yeah. Okay, well, maybe amitriptyline? Amitriptyline, yeah, I don't think anybody's, yeah, I don't think people have figured out how to mess with amitriptyline yet, but give them some time, they'll figure it out. People are going to ruin table salt for us after a while. <laughs> okay, so our listeners can write in if they've figured out a way they can use amitriptyline as a street drug. This is this podcast <laughs> is rapidly going to a different direction. <laughs> I know Fifty Shades of Hydrogenitis Superativa and How to Abuse Your Gabapentin. We are a saucy dermatology podcast. <laughs>
This next clip is from episode 13 and discusses intralesional triamcinolone for hydradenida separativa and how it may not actually work. And the clip after that is from the following episode, episode 14, and includes the um, senior author from that article, Chris Syed, an HS expert who joins us to talk about us. And then after that one, that'll be all we've got for this episode. It's about intralesional triamcinolone, or ILK, to its friends. And this group tried injecting nodules of HS with ILK-10. So that's intralesional triamcinolone, 10 milligrams per milliliter. ILK-10, ILK-40, or saline. And basically discovered that they were all equally not very effective. So the details. This is out of the uh, Dermatology Surgery, Dermatologic Surgery Journal. And the title is Intralesional Triamcinolone May Not Be Beneficial for Treating Acute Hydradenitis Superativa Lesions, a Double-Blind Randomized Placebo-Controlled Trial. And the authors include Kristen Frogenbaum. Sorry about that, Kristen. And Christopher Syed. Um, by the way, shout out to Christopher Syed. He is an extremely nice guy who was very helpful when I corresponded with him by email about a de-roofing procedure I did on a patient with HS, um, which turned out very well. So this study had 32 patients with HS, and they were randomized to ILK-10, ILK-40, or saline, and then followed for 14 days. And they injected 0.1 ml of whatever it was they were injecting into each of these nodules. They say that this 0.1 ml is standard practice at, at UNC, where this study was performed, and it doesn't create a, quote, field effect. So presumably whatever effect the medication has is localized just to that nodule um, with that amount of injection. And they picked discrete inflammatory nodules that were less than two centimeters. And again, they followed them for 14 days, and they found no significant difference um, for a number of different metrics. One was days to inflammatory lesion clearance, which was about 10 days, regardless of what kind of thing you were injected with. Another metric they used was pain reduction at day five, so the patients kept track of their pain scales. And each one of the methods, the patient's pain was decreased by about two on a one to 10 scale. And then they also had patients report satisfaction. And all of them were reported to be a little bit helpful or moderately helpful. So, I mean, no one said, I mean, on average, people didn't say they weren't helpful, but um, saline was the same as ILK-40. They note a previous survey of HS inflammatory nodules where your random HS inflammatory nodule lasts for about seven days in that survey. So it's a little discouraging that in these nodules that were all treated specifically, their average clearance was about 10 days. So presumably even longer than just letting them resolve away on their own. But these are all small studies, so who knows how long your average HS nodule actually lingers. And they do report um, that it is possible that the act of puncturing a lesion or instilling external solution provides some relief. So perhaps it's not whatever mechanism we think is occurring with the steroid that's making people better when we do some ILK in them. It's just the fact that we're poking a hole in a nodule or it's the fact that we're injecting something into a nodule. Or maybe it's more fuzzy and it's like doctor-patient relationship stuff and they feel like they're getting a procedure and there's more sort of a placebo effect going on. And just the fact that they feel like they did something makes them feel better. It's tough to know. Um, it would be kind of nice to repeat a study like this that did have like an observation arm 
though that would be hard to you know randomize and double blind somebody who just got like a sham injection i guess you could cover their eyes and prod it with a toothpick or something like that they point out that some future studies could potentially use larger volumes or just poking a hole in it without injecting anything in it it's an interesting question i also wondered if the injection of the saline since it's probably the bacteriostatic type of, of sterile saline had any effect in terms of mitigating bacteria growth? I don't know. Do bacteria like saline? I don't think that they like the, you know, sterile saline I think has some bacteriostatic properties. Another if good question. Buffered, I don't know. Did, I don't know if they like um, mentioned that or not, but possibly. We, we could try just tap water. Give our patients some atypical mycobacteria. Get some mycobacterial growth in there. I feel like that could be problematic. But distilled water, you could do distilled water against saline. That would be interesting. So in some ways discouraging because HS is really tough to treat. And I, you know, anecdotally, I feel like some patients seem to respond all right to ILK, but maybe they're just, again, responding to me poking a hole in it or whatever. And they feel a little bit better at day five. Maybe they would have felt a little bit better at day five, even if they didn't bother coming into the clinic and instead spent 45 minutes watching Orange is the New Black or something. <laughs> yeah, I think that, you know, HS is one of those conditions that's so difficult to treat that, you know, usually a multi-pronged approach is required for therapy. It is always interesting, though, to assess dogma and things that we've always been taught are beneficial and see if there's actually any therapeutic benefit to it or not. So that is an interesting thing to, to decide. So at least this says that if you're going to do ILK, you can keep doing it, but you could just use ILK-10. You don't have to bust out the ILK-40. Our guest today is Chris. Thank you so much for joining us. Do you want to start by introducing yourself? Yeah, sure thing. So um, I'm Chris Side. I'm at University of North Carolina, uh, Department of Dermatology, and I've been on the faculty here for about five or six years now um, and did all my training at UNC and undergraduate training and stuff, too. And so I've been here for a long time. Uh, and after joining the faculty for uh, about a year or two in, uh, I started sort of specifically developing an HS clinic, um, which was pretty easy because if you tell people that uh, that you're willing to see all their HS patients, they are very quick to send them to you. And so I've been able to very quickly build a, a large practice um, with hydradenitis patients. And uh, it's an area where there's just a huge need for more evidence and studies. So I've gotten into to trying to um, help learn, learn more about the disease along the way too. Well, we appreciate you doing that. I do consider HS kind of an underserved condition in dermatology. I feel like we have other conditions that I would argue are a little overserved right now. So maybe we need to reallocate some of our resources. I would not argue with you there. And you were the senior author in a article that we discussed in our last episode, episode 13, about using interlesional triamcinolone for HS lesions. And the, I'm just going to sort of summarize it here. It looks like you tried ILK-40, ILK-10, and then just normal saline. And all three of those study arms, or all three of those study armpits, I should say, uh, had similar <laughs> results. Exactly. Yeah. And definitely it's, it's, you know, confusing results in a lot of ways. I, you know, we did it very much just saying that, you know, there are so many things we do for HS and this is true in dermatology in general that just have, don't have good evidence, even though they're kind of standard practice. And we figured like, why don't we just figure if, uh, figure out if, you know, Kenalog 40, the higher concentration is maybe a little more effective than Kenalog 10, just to guide people on how they would do it. And we should have a placebo group at the same time, because really we've never, you know, determined efficacy in the past of how well it actually works. And it'd be nice to know that. 
you know, some patients clinically seem to love it and they come in asking for it. And there are others who really hate it and, and never want you to come near them with a needle again. Um, and there is some pain involved. And so, you know, if you're going to do something that puts a patient through kind of a tough experience, it's nice to know how much it helps and, and you know, how reliable it is and the best way to do of it. So we very much expected that we'd see, you know, differences between the overall uh, triamcinolone groups versus the normal saline group. Um, you know, surprisingly, there was not a huge difference, actually. Um, and I'm still, you know, not 100% sure how to explain it. I've got my, you know, my theories. Um, but yeah, ultimately, a little bit of a surprise. And now that you've done the study and have discovered that, has it affected the way you treat your patients? Yeah. So, I mean, I, you know, I think uh, it'd be easy to ask the question like, all right, if, if I believe it, I should never inject anybody with Kenalog again. And, and I certainly do. Again, there are a lot of patients who, you know, feel like it's helpful. And I think, you know, we had overall 60 lesions in the study. You know, we could do up to three lesions for each patient. And we tried to focus on lesions that were two centimeters or less and that were relatively newly inflamed. We didn't want things that have been inflamed kind of nonstop for a long time or just a large draining sinus or a big abscess. And we try to, you know, again, put it, you know, in, in relatively confined lesions to be able to track those individual lesions well. Um, and so I, so still sometimes I do because, again, there are variations, I think, in how people do it in real life. We did 0.1 cc um, of each of those things because we just wanted, didn't want to get to sort of overall larger doses that might have a field effect or a systemic effect. If you take a vial of Kenalog 40 and inject it all over somebody's armpit, in the end, you're giving them a 40 milligrams of triamcinolone pretty much. Um, so we limited some of what we did, but that means that maybe we don't reflect what happens in real life sometimes. Um, so it may be that, that it's helpful still for certain patients, you know, and had we done, you know, 120 lesions instead of 60, we would have started to see those differences come out a little bit. Um, or it might be that, you know, small variations in technique, you know, would make it helpful for certain patients. So I don't say no to patients who feel like it'd be helpful. Um, and I still offer it occasionally in situations, but I definitely don't, you know, sort of, I think, push it as strongly as I would have beforehand, you know, where it's like if a patient comes in, I can tell them with certainty, this will make you a whole lot, a whole lot better for sure if we do it. So I think the amount that I, uh, the, you know, uh, you know, frequency with which I use it has gone down a fair bit, but it's not something where I think there it's, it's a useless or, or futile treatment. You know, my real hope is that somebody else comes along and does another study that sort of shows us the right way to do it and, and optimizes it. Um, so hopefully there will be will for, for somebody else to do that at some point. Why does it have to be somebody else? You guys seem pretty good <laughs> at it. That's true. Yeah, we could do it. You know, maybe I, and I could be just, you know, very bad at injecting interlesional kinolog, and that's why the study failed. But, um, but yeah, maybe at some point we could, you know, come up with a new protocol. I mean, you know, these kind of studies, you know, you know, to get funding for this kind of a study, this is kind of in general for any kind of old medicines like this, but it is, you know, a huge time commitment and effort commitment. And, you know, I had a, a fellow at that point that was sort of helping to spearhead to some extent. And so we could do a, a follow-up study at some point where we change things, um, you know, I feel like if we fall into a situation where it shows the same result, you know, it would be nice if, if in a different center, it was either verified that it didn't work out the right way. Um, you know, it's nice to be able to have that the results more broadly applicable than just a single center repeating the same study over and over again. But we may come up with a way to vary it at some point or develop it across a few centers and, and, and try to sort of get that same uh, you know, broader perspective. Have you changed the strength that you use? So do you just use ILK-10 now? Um, you know, typically, actually, I still use kind of, it, it kind of depends on how much I'm doing. If I'm only treating a few lesions, I'll typically, um, do Kenalog 40. If it's, if I'm doing, you know, where somebody wants me to do a whole bunch, I'll sometimes back off on that. Cause again, if you use a CC of Kenalog 40 and people keep coming in to get it, you're giving them a lot of steroid over time. Um, so I do try to just think about the overall dose I give. Um, but I figure if, if 0.1 CC of Kenalog 40 wasn't enough, 
Um, you know, I may be like a little more heavy handed on just the one or two lesions I treat now. I'm just trying to help increase the overall amount that I'm delivering. You know, the, the, one of the sort of big take-homes from the study was that like, you know, all the patients got better in every group, right? Or they all had decreasing pain over the course of days and all had, if you looked at their satisfaction rates, just asking how satisfied they were with the treatment, they were all pretty satisfied. And it's possible that, you know, the normal saline, just, you know, the needle puncturing the wound, instilling something that sort of expanded it a little bit, helped it maybe resolve a tiny bit faster. So it's possible that all the groups did a little something. You know, the idea has been raised a few times that if we use bacteriostatic saline, that there's benzyl alcohol in there, and that might have a, have a sort of a, a confusing effect. But these were single-dose vials. They weren't bacteriostatic. It was really just pure saline. And so I don't think that's what it was, but maybe just that physical manipulation is what helped. Um, but it also makes me leery of other studies, too, where there's no no placebo group. You know, there's been like one study of using resorcinol peels, um, you know, which showed improvement in patients generally liking the treatment, but there was no control arm, just like in another prospective study that had been done in Kenalog before that showed improvement in all the patients, but there was no control there. Um, and, and we know that if, even in like the, the, you know, pioneer studies at Alimumab, there were 25% placebo response rates and response rates higher than that have been reported for other things. So it's just the importance of having a control arm, you know, when something really has no, you know, baseline evidence, I think is really important um, when it's feasible at least. Um, but yeah, it's just, it's, it's, it's hard to know like why the patients like the normal saline so much. Speaking of some of these previous studies, it looks like you were also the co-chair of the North American Clinical Management Guidelines for HS, which was a series of articles that came out out of the JAD that, again, we reviewed in this podcast, and that was in episode five. And one of the things that struck me from those articles was, um, indeed, the number of these trials that didn't really have control groups or placebo groups. Yeah, I'm with you on that. I mean, that was like, I think one of the things that when we were doing that Kenalog study, it was part of our motivation is that if you go and try to assess evidence, you know, the same evidence has been assessed many times in many different ways in different review articles and stuff, but there's very little primary evidence out there in HS. And now the drug companies are developing new drugs there. The new stuff is going to have evidence, you know, but even if you look at like, you know, doxymenocycline, you know, there's almost nothing out there about those things, even though those are probably the most used treatments. Um, so guidelines are nice because they hopefully provide some advice on, on how to treat things, but one of the other uses of them is that they point out, you know, where a lack of evidence exists um, and highlights the need for sort of research and, and sort of points uh, people in the direction of where maybe we could do some of these basic studies. Well, I expect that our listeners are excited to have an HS expert on the line right now. Is there any final thoughts or pro tips you want to give about treating patients with this condition? Yeah, I mean, you know, I think most people consider, you know, this, uh, uh, you know, a challenging disease to treat. It is definitely, you know, something that has a lot of ups and downs and, and there's urgent needs from patients. Um, you know, but I think this is where, you know, if we look back at our first day of medical school and we think about the patient, you know, what, what our motivations were and wanting to take care of sick patients, I think these are the, the patients who, like you said at the beginning, need it the most and have gotten some of the littlest attention over time. Um, and so, uh, you know, so, you know, taking the sort of extra time and effort on these patients, even though it um, is probably more complicated than, than a lot of the other things we do, I think it, it can really pay off if you, um, you know, uh, you know, make a big effort to take good care of the patients. And that's whether it's with medications, you know, being available for, you know, sort of urgent procedures sometimes that are necessary. And then just, I think, you know, I, I talk a lot about uh, surgery and HS and its role, and it's not what everybody needs, but that can make a huge difference for patients with HS, whether you could uh, sort of develop some skills to do some basic procedures like some unroofings, um, or just try to make sure you, you build strong relationships with your local surgeons um, and really try to to, um, you know, get their, their sort of, uh, 
you know, input in their buy-in on trying to manage these patients too and, and, and doing it together because they want they want help, you know, from a dermatologist that can kind of be the quarterback a lot of times. And they're happy to sometimes do the surgery as long as they feel like they've got help doing everything else. From my limited experience, um, I think it's important to remember that HS just really sucks. It's a really terrible disease to have, you know, for your whole life. And that if you can take some ownership of it and um, do some of these procedures and so on, that you can, the patient can get significantly better, which is very satisfying for them and also immensely satisfying for you taking care of them and being able to be the person to help them. Yeah, I, I totally agree. It is uh, the diseases we treat. I think if we, you know, line up a list of our sort of 10 diseases, we'd least like have it are relatively common. I think HS pretty much my life would, would be hugely done right now. Had I developed HS in my teen years and, and had to, you know, have that as something to deal with on not, not that patients with HS can't be successful, but I think just in terms of how it impacts, you know, your relationships over time and, um, you know, ability to, to succeed and, and, you know, in some areas it can, it can be a, a big obstacle for some people. Well, Dr. Syed, thank you so much for joining us. Really appreciate you taking the time to join us here on Dermosphere. I appreciate you having me. Thanks for uh, taking some time to talk about HS. And that will do it for Best of HS Volume 1. I hope that you guys like this. I know it was a bit new, but a lot of these articles were great, and I continue to use them in clinic today when I'm taking care of patients with hydradenitis separativa. If you would like to go back and listen to the original episodes in all of their glory, you can, of course, do so on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also find our entire archive on our website, dermospherepodcast.com. By the way, there are links to all of the original articles in our archives on our website. I don't usually mention that, but I probably should. I find it a really valuable resource. If I have a patient, for example, the other day, I had a patient with aquagenic wrinkling of the palms. And I thought, ah, we had an episode where we talked about a treatment for aquagenic wrinkling of the palms. And then I bring up our own website and I control F aquagenic and find it and click on the link. And there's the article and I can remember what treatments were tried. So check that out. You can also find us on social media. We are on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. And thank you to Ryan Carlisle, medical student and member of Team Dermosphere, who keeps those social media accounts humming along. We also have another podcast. If you really like listening to Michelle and I talk, it's called SkinCast. They're short episodes. They're about 15 minutes, and they are aimed at the general public. So you might direct your patients there, or of course, you could listen to them yourself. Thanks, of course, to our institutions as well. Thanks to the University of Utah for supporting the podcast. And thanks to Texas Tech for lending us, Michelle. And thanks most of all to you listeners for hanging out with us again this time. And we will expect a fully recovered and happy Michelle to join us in two weeks. We'll see you then. Bye.